0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We're continuing our series called The Games People Play. This week's message is by Brian Condelo. We have come to the part of the service that all of you have been eagerly anticipating. And by that, I do not mean the message. I mean the fruit snacks. Yes. So we love family gathers. We love children. We are so glad that you are in this place with us this morning, and we will celebrate with fruit snacks. So ushers, you can come forward and pass those out, and maybe, just maybe today, one of you will find the golden ticket, and that will be really exciting. But I think the beauty of fruit snacks is this sound for the next five minutes. So enjoy that. Enjoy that. We're glad we can do that. Hey, we're talking about the games people play. And so we've been highlighting games through the month of August, and this morning we're going to talk about this beauty right here, perfection. How many of you played this game before or have this game in your house? Yes. I am not really sure how they actually sell this as a game. This should be like a stress test. This thing is awful. I don't know. I'm not sure what the enjoyment is of this, but it's, right, frantically trying to put all of the pieces into place, knowing that inevitably it's all going to blow up in your face. Pretty sure we could close in prayer right now (laughs) because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I don't know if any of you in the room would self-diagnose as perfectionists, But this morning I'm going to give you a little bit of a quiz. We're gonna see what kind of leanings you have towards perfectionism. So we're gonna start with some visual clues and then we'll go through some different questions. So uh, this first picture here, and I just wanna know, raise your hand if this really bugs you. Right, good, so just know that this is coming. I'm going to make a lot of you very uncomfortable in the upcoming pictures. How about this next one here? Right? It seems like it's all great and it's really artsy, but if, what if you had to live in there? What if your curtains were the ones that were all twisted sideways? That, that's awful, it makes me cringe. Go ahead to the next picture. Really? Really, Did, was this on purpose? That's what I wanna know. Did someone like, ooh, this would be artsy? We'll or this was a total accident and someone was like, oh, I goofed up. Either way, scrap the table, go for something new. All right, go ahead to the next picture. Ugh, this is just total anarchy right here. I don't get this one at all. I mean, the lines are there. It's so, you just cut along the line. Everybody gets an equal piece. Don't just all, ugh. Go ahead, go to the next one. I can't look at that one. Right, you would think, it's color-coded. You would put them in, in that order. I I don't know. Go ahead to the next one. That one bugs me too. Yeah, I know. Some of you are reliving angst from your childhood, right? When the slinky bends, it's done. What good is it anymore? It sits together, but you can always see that little bend in it. All that's left is just to stretch it out and see how far it'll go. And then throw it out. Can't do it. Go ahead to the next one. Okay, so here's my question. I want to know... Raise your hand if you think you would just eat this as is. All right, raise your hand if you're like, nope, you gotta peel everything off, make sure it's all, all right, (laughs) me too. (laughs) Because there could be some pudding hiding underneath those things, and you gotta get it out of there, people. All right, here's another one, last one here. (laughs) Does that sit as poorly with you as it does with me? Everybody in this room knows how you're supposed to eat a Kit-Kat, right? You break a piece off, you eat that piece, you don't do anything like take a bite out of it that way. So maybe, maybe if those bugged you, you have a leaning towards perfectionism. How about this? Getting an A minus makes you frustrated. People who are late drive you crazy. Seeing a Facebook post with a grammatical error Someone wearing a belt who missed a belt loop. And you're like, excuse me, excuse me, just a minute. Can I help you here? That's just awkward though, right? When someone tells you, hey, you did a pretty good job, right? Kids in the room. How many kids are like, I colored outside the lines. Throw it out and start again. Yeah. Or maybe when you're in school and and the teacher asks a question and you're afraid to raise your hand because you're like, I don't want to get that one wrong. Adults, let's get a little closer to the heart of the matter. Do you wrestle with trying to be happy for your friends when they do a better job than you do? If you can't do it right, do you not do it at all? Is your self-confidence based on what others say about you? Do you wrestle with decision-making? Does criticism wreck you? Do you feel like you're never doing enough? Do you understand that you've had successes in your life, but you don't replay those all the time? You replay the failures in your life again and again and again. How many of you just got a perfect on that quiz? (laughs) Well done. What is perfectionism, and why do we live in this system where we always are trying to be perfect? We're always trying to prove our worth through our performance. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to define what perfectionism is, and we're going to look at what Paul had to say about it in Scripture, a little bit of how he dealt with this, and and grab onto some handles about how we can avoid this trap. But first, let's define what perfectionism is. It's this, a personality trait characterized by a person's striving for flawlessness and setting excessively high performance standards— accompanied by overly critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' evaluations, right? So let's just break that down. Perfectionism is this. I am going to live flawlessly. I am going to do things perfectly because I very much care about my own evaluation of my life and I also very much care about what other people say about me. And because those are two huge factors in my life, I will attempt to do everything right. Perfectionism is setting this unreachable standard. It's saying, I will have a perfect life. I'll have the perfect body. I'll have the perfect marriage. I'll have the perfect family. I'll have the perfect job. I'll have the perfect whatever you want to fill in in this space. But deep understanding underneath that, knowing that, how can I be perfect? And what is perfect really? You see, perfectionists, they want everybody to see them in a certain light. They want everybody to look at them in a certain way and think that they have it all together, but most of the time, perfectionists feel like imposters. They feel like you've put up this wall so that everybody else can see and look from the outside and see how great you have it, but on the inside, you don't feel like you have it all together at all. You see, it's a dangerous thing to live in a carefully edited, overproduced, photoshopped world. And I'm not really sure all of the effects that social media is having on our society, and from what I'm reading, we won't really know until this generation grows up and there's more study done as to the effect of social media, but I can't help but wonder if social media isn't fueling this desire for perfection. You see, because what Instagram and Facebook and all those other things have given us is they've given us our own personal public relations firm. Right? This, this idea that we can show the world this side of us that we want them to see. And so we can post things about, wow, look at this amazing adventure that I'm on, or look at this amazing thing that I did this morning, or look at this amazing salad that I had for lunch, right? <laughs> And we're just trying to show people what it looks like to be in our lives. This is real life for me. But real life for us in reality is we've taken 15 different pictures of that salad. We've run it through a dozen different filters. We've agonized over the wording. And then finally we posted, hey, look at my real life. And it's not just the effect that it's having on us. What's the effect that it's having on people around us? See, the more we strive for perfection, the more we're pushing others to strive for that as well. How many of you honestly have felt lessened by someone else's Facebook post, right? How many of you have wanted to respond in a one-upmanship like, my salad was better than yours? (laughs) I think you had a good salad, my salad was great. You see, what makes perfectionism so toxic is it seems like the focus is on one's personal success, but the focus is really on the avoidance of failure. See, it's not a positive orientation. Perfectionism is a negative orientation. You see, at its root, perfectionism isn't really about a deep love of being meticulous. It's about fear. At its root, perfectionism is about fear. Fear of making a mistake. Fear of disappointing other people. Fear of failure. Fear of insignificance. I hang out with students a lot, and every once in a while we get to the topic of fear, and we talk about what are the things that you are afraid of, and it always starts innocently enough, and people are afraid of snakes, and spiders, and flying monkeys, all of those things that typically you are afraid of, and then eventually it turns into, you know, kind of future life, and will I have enough, and then one student will say this, I'm afraid that I'm not enough. And that always brings a pause to the conversation because every other student says, yeah, that one. Am I enough? Am I enough? Because we think then, okay, if I can perform to a certain level, then I can prove that I'm enough, that I can answer yes to that question more often than not. You see, the lie that we've bought into is this. Perfectionism is the path to significance. That's the lie that we've bought into. That is not true. Don't write that down as a truth. But we think perfectionism is a path to significance because that's what the world has told us. You see, let's talk about the world's economy. In the world's economy, your value is based on your performance. That's the system that we live in. We reward people for hitting home runs. We reward people for hitting the right notes. People who make touchdowns or make the latest, greatest technology, those are the people that we look up to. And so we believe that if you are a professional athlete, you are worth more than an amateur athlete. And we believe that a person who sings on a TV show is worth more than a person who sings at home in their house. Your value is based on your performance. The other thing that we've bought into that the world tells us is that failure then is fatal. Failure is fatal. You could do 99 things perfect and one thing wrong, and what do you focus on? The one thing wrong. That's the thing that gets replayed in your head. You constantly in this society have to prove that you're a success, but when you fail, that failure is a stamp. That's a seal. That's it, you're done. I read an article years ago by an author named Malcolm Gladwell, and he was writing this article about the performance and preparation habits of athletes and students. And he starts with with Peyton Manning, and he talks about how Peyton Manning prepares for a football game like nobody else in the entire league, that he has done his homework, that he has watched film, that he is above and beyond the most prepared for that game. And physically, he is in the best shape that he can possibly be in. And experientially, he has years and years of experience. So he goes into this game fully prepared. He could not do one more thing to prepare for this game. Now, what happens when Peyton Manning goes into a game that way and loses? What does he say? He couldn't have possibly done anything else to prepare, but he lost. So then is the question, are you good enough? Are you good enough to be a winner? You see, the point is is that it's far more psychologically dangerous and difficult to prepare for a task than to not prepare for a task. And most of the research done on this is done with students and why students do not study for tests. You see, if you're a student and you goof off the night before a test and you come in and take the test and fail, you always have an excuse, right? Well, I goofed off last night. I didn't study for it. If I would have studied, you know, who knows what the outcome would have been. But if you study for all your worth and you go in and you take that test and you fail, that means that you lack intelligence. And a lack of intelligence for a student is a death sentence. And so then this idea comes, wow, if I fail at this, then that's it. That's final. I'm done. And that's why students don't want to study, don't want to prepare, don't want to lean in because they have this mindset that, man, failure, it's, it's fatal. It's final. I'm done. And so I'm always going to have a little built-in excuse. But the world also tells us then, guess what? Try harder. <laughs> it's up to you. You prove yourself. You can do it. You can make your dreams happen. Try harder. That's the world's economy. So our worth, our importance, our significance, our value, our meaning is tied to our performance. And so it's no wonder that we're raising a generation of perfectionists. It's no wonder that we ourselves feel like we have to be perfect because our value is tied to that. And I think we recognize this system. And the question isn't, how can I succeed in this system? Because I think we've been trying to do that for too long. The question is is this really a good system? And I think the real question is, help get me out of this system. I don't want to live in a system where I always have to perform to be valued. We're going to look at how Paul handled this. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to grab one from the pew there, it's on page 1806. I want to give you a little bit of background to this story. The Corinthian church at this point in time was filled with division, It was planted by Paul. Paul came in and he planted this church and it was going great. And then he moved on and other evangelists came in and and took the church further. And we read in chapter three that one of them was Apollos and one of them was Cephas or Peter came along and helped this church get a little bit further. And so as a result of that, different groups of people within the church had different connections to these different leaders Some people, hey, I was around when Paul started this place. Some people, yeah, I came in when Apollos was doing a great work. And they were trying to use this connection with this different leader to make a power play. Like, no, you need to listen to me because I was here with Paul and, and Paul was saying this way. And so we need to go this way. And they were saying, no, Apollos, he was moving us in this different direction. And, you know, it's like, hey, I... Uh, Steve Fowler's great and uh, Steve gave this vision and I wanna follow Steve's vision and some of you are like, well, yeah, but I was here when St. Barb Fletcher started and man, don't mess with the halo. So we gotta listen to that and try to make this power play about who that they were following and who that they were listening to and, and Paul stepping in and he's saying, stop the jealousy, stop the quarreling, stop the boasting. Right? And people would have been talking about Paul in a positive way and would have talked about Paul in a, in a negative way. And he comes in and he talks about how he deals with these expectations and he's going to deal with this. Starting in verse one, he says, so look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. And then here's, here's where we get to him dealing with this idea. Verse three, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. Now let's pause there. Paul is saying, it matters very little about what other people think about me. It matters very little about how other people evaluate me. Could we say that in our own lives? Because I think we care very much about what other people think about us. We care very much about how other people evaluate us. Am I wearing the right clothes to fit in? Is my hair done correctly? Do I hang out with the right group of people? Are people gonna notice me when I do this action so that they will look at me and say, good job? Do I listen to the right music? Do I watch the right movies? I care about what other people think about me. It controls a lot of my actions. When my wife and I purchased our first house, The bedrooms were on the second story, but the staircase to get there was very skinny. It goes up, it turns 90 degrees to the left, and it had a really low ceiling. So as we're hauling things up the steps, the box spring to our bed wouldn't fit up the steps. And I didn't want to revert to the days of of the Dick Van Dyke show with two uh, single beds. I just wanted to get our bed up the steps. And so I had heard at one point in time, I don't, I don't know when, that, you know, it's just a box spring. You could just cut that thing in half. So I took it back out to the driveway, and I carefully peeled back the fabric, and I got the circular saw, and I started to cut our box spring in half. And then I noticed the neighbors were watching. And I had this horrible thought that the neighbors were judging me and my marriage, because I'm cutting my mattress in half. You know, can't you see them like, oh wow. He already told me he's a youth pastor. Now he's cutting his bed in half. Boy, they're a mess. And I wanted to stand up as I'm doing this and be like, I'm fine. My marriage is fine. We're good. We're in a happy place. It's good. And that controlled my thinking for a long time. I was so concerned that the neighbors were like judging me in my marriage all the time. And, but who knows? Who knows what they were thinking? But we spend a lot of time very concerned about how other, how other people will evaluate us. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. That, that when we live our lives with this fear of what other people are going to think about us, it doesn't give us freedom It traps us, it binds us, it hinders us. Paul went so far as to say it this way in Galatians 1. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. He's saying those two things are radically different. You can't try and live a life pleasing people, but also try and live your life pleasing God, because eventually those two things are going to collide. You have to choose one or the other, and yet so often we choose our actions by what other people are going to think about us. Which is so interesting that we spend such an excessive amount of time thinking about something that we can't ever really possibly know. You can't possibly know what everybody is thinking about you, so you base your actions on what you think they are thinking about what you're doing, which is crazy. And yet we live that way. Paul said, you know what? It matters very little how other people evaluate me. I'm trying to live for God. Now, I think we can get past that point. I think we understand, you know what? Yes, I get it. I might not live that way, but I get it. And we've heard people say, it doesn't matter what other people think about you. It matters what you think about you. You're the one that gets to decide your actions. You're the one that decides what's perfect for you. But you know what, Paul doesn't think that either. If you look at verse three, he he says, as we just read, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. And then he says this, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. Paul says, it's not just other people, it's me. Because let's be honest, who's your harshest critic? Yourself? right? Paul's saying, I I don't really care what other people say, and I don't even trust my own voice on this, because we are our own harshest critic. It's that voice that has no off button. There's no mute button on that voice that goes in your head over and over again. Look what you did. Can you believe you did that wrong? We listen to that voice. I don't trust it all the time either because it ruins everyday activities. The voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough. I really enjoy biking. I like to come home from work and jump on my bike and I have a 10 mile loop from my house out into the country and back and it's a beautiful thing. And I always tell myself when I get on my bike that today I'm just going to ride for enjoyment's sake. So I put my headphones in, I put some music on, and I'm riding and enjoying nature. But I have an app that I use to map my progress because you have to quantify your activity. Your exercise needs to have a number to it. And the app is set up so that every two miles it tells me uh, the data of my ride. How far I am, how fast I'm going, and everything like that. So I'm enjoying myself up until the point that voice says, distance, two miles. Speed, and then it gives me my speed. Split speed. And then always, 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 I'm like, wow, that's slow. I can't believe I'm riding this slow. What am I, four? Pick up the pace. And so I start biking harder and I start sweating more. And then at four miles, I'm like, okay, did I catch up? And then it tells me my split speed. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? I have to be faster than this I have to go better than this and so I push harder and I hear it at six and eight and at ten and by the time I get home I can't even lift my bike back up onto the hooks in the garage because I'm so exhausted my enjoyable ride has turned into this awful horrible exercise routine because this little voice in my head says you're not enough you're not doing good enough I don't care that there were a lot of hills I don't care that the wind was blowing in your face do you know what your split speed was pathetic You're a biking loser, (laughs) come on, right? That voice in our head that just plays those things over and over and over again. I mean, I came into today's sermon saying, man, I really wanna preach the perfect message on perfection. (laughs) It's gotta be just right. What are people gonna think about that? Paul said, I don't trust the voice in my head either. Paul had it, in some ways, figured out. It matters very little what other people say, and I don't trust the voice in my head all the time because it doesn't speak truth to me. But you see, for a perfectionist, we don't have that figured out. For a perfectionist, every day is like a day in the courtroom. Every day, you are trying to prove your importance, your value, your worth. You're trying to prove that you are enough by your actions. And so you stand before the judge and you say, okay, I did this really well. I did this really well. But then if there's something that you did wrong, yeah, that's evidence for the prosecution. And you're like, yeah, I understand that I did that wrong. But as a perfectionist, you're always standing before the judge, always trying to tell the judge how valuable you are. It's as if in in third grade, the teacher said, I want you to stand up and line up in order of importance. And we've been doing it in our lives ever since. Trying to show how important we are. Trying to get a little further up in the line. Trying to get some people behind us. Trying to move up. Trying to show how valuable we are with our actions. It's all a comparison game. It's all jockeying for position. It's all trying to tell the judge how good we are. C.S. Lewis just calls it pride. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says it this way. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something... Only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally as rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about, right? It's this comparison game. It's this, I'm better than you. It's not that, oh, I can achieve something and be satisfied with what I've achieved. It's I need to achieve it so that I can keep moving up in the ranks so that I can show other people how good I am, so that I can prove my worth to the judge. But the reality is this, it's never enough. You can't do enough. You can't perform at a high enough level. When I was in high school I played basketball and I can remember it's the semifinal game before the championship, it's the game that's gonna push us there. The score's tied, there's 10 seconds left, I have the ball in my hands. I drive to the hoop, I put it up, it doesn't go in but I get fouled. So I step to the free throw line, a few seconds left on the clock, game tied. I get ready to shoot, they call timeout, you know, trying to ice the shooter. Me and my sarcasm, thank you, I needed a drink, Woo! You know, get a drink, come back out to the line, step up, sink both of them. Perfection from the line. The game that's gonna send us to the championship. I'm backpedaling down the court, feeling a little bit proud of myself. They pass it into this little guy, half my size, and my size isn't that big, and it was smaller then. Uh, He gets it, he chucks it from half court, it goes in. End of the game. (laughs) My performance was bettered that fast. You you can't do enough. You can't keep moving up that line enough so that you will be considered enough or valuable. See, the deal is we need something outside of us to tell us who we are. We need something outside of us to speak that value over us. And you're not going to get it from other people. It's laying a burden on them that they cannot handle. You're not gonna get it from that own, your own voice in your own head, and you're not gonna get it from your performance. None of those things will speak over you what you need spoken over you. And that's what Paul understood. He said, it's not other people. It's not the voice in my own head. It's not my performance. It's not perfection doesn't validate me. Here's what he says in verse four. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. Now, what he's saying is, he's saying, I have a clear conscience, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. I've done a lot of things, but my conscience is still clear. He says, It's the Lord Himself who will examine me and decide. This is what he knew. He knew that God's voice was the voice that mattered. And so that's how he could say, My conscience is clear. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. This is a phrase I think perfectionists need to latch onto. Sure, I've done all kinds of crazy, terrible stuff, but my conscience is clear because I know who the judge is. And there's only one voice that matters. There's only one voice that can speak that value over you. There's only one voice that can assure you that you are enough. Your perfectionism will never take you there. And Paul knew that God was the only judge. And so to the perfectionists in the room, let me read you the verdict. Romans 8.1 says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 3. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. That's what we are. This is what God speaks over us. John 15, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. Psalm 103, for his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate. This is the verdict. 1 Peter chapter 2, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Guys, there's so many verses that give us the verdict, and the verdict is in. Tim Keller puts it this way. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Isn't that great? That you don't have to perform to achieve this verdict. This verdict has been given to you already. God loves you independently of what you do or do not bring to the table. You see, Jesus went on trial for us. He was our substitute. He took the condemnation that we deserve. He faced the trial so that we didn't have to. So his voice is the only voice that matters, and his voice is the only voice that can speak over us value and meaning and significance. But too often we listen to the voices of others, to the voice in our own head, and we try and perform that way. You see, we talked about the world's economy. In the world's economy, value is based on performance, but in God's economy, value is based on performance still, but it's the performance of Jesus. And we get to wear his righteousness. In God's economy, failure is not fatal, It's forgiven. Your failures are forgiven. Psalm 103 says they're gone. I think God would tell us this too. Don't try harder thinking it's up to you. Rest more. It's not up to you. Let me give you a few handles in closing to hang on to. First is this. Continue to let God speak value over you. Understand that Court is adjourned, the verdict is in. I'm not saying don't work hard, sure, work hard. But your value is not based upon your performance. That's already been decided, and so continue to let those verses wash over you. Secondly, I would just remind you of this. God always uses imperfect people. He has to, there'd be nobody else to use, right? (laughs) Because all of us are that way. We're all imperfect. We studied David. He was imperfect. God used him. Peter, God used him. God uses imperfect people. You do not have to be perfect because you're forgiven, and you wear the righteousness of Christ. And finally, I would just say this. Stop playing the comparison game. You have to figure out how to stop trying to move up in line, to jockey for position to be perfect, to compare yourself to other people. And so I think ways to do this, we need to be better at rejoicing and celebrating the accomplishments of other people. Like if you win the silver medal, you have to be willing to praise and applaud the person that won the gold. Not wish I had won the gold. Wow, man, they did such a great job. And the other thing I think is you need to find ways to be thankful for your everyday circumstances that you did not have to perform for. Ways that God has just spoken into things in your life. How can you be thankful for those? Because, guys, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that I'm so flawed, Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved that he was glad to do it. That's the gospel. So we have a deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time, that we don't have to feel superior to anyone else, and we don't have to prove ourselves to anyone else. (sighs) Because the verdict is in. And you are enough. And you are valued. And you are loved. And you are important because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's wisdom. And I pray that you would teach us struggling perfectionists. That you're the one that speaks value over us. And I pray that we would just receive that. I thank you that the verdict is in and that you love us with an everlasting love. It's in your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.